Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, as I'm sure most of you know, the uh, early years of the 20th century were influenced profoundly by the work of a uh, certain Dr. Freud, Sigmund Freud, um, invented pretty much the uh, practice of psychoanalysis and um, his insights, even outside of his own style of practice, um, influenced a lot of Western society. Um, Although in the later years of the 20th century, Freudian style analysis fell out of favor with a lot of uh, folks, except for Woody Allen, I guess. And um, the focus moved to other styles of psychological and psycho-whatever psycho, uh, therapy. Just was a, a development, a moving forward progress. And yet, at least one of the contributions of Dr. Freud has in the last week come back to prominence. This is um, speaking at the uh, George W. Bush Institute of something. forget the name of it, but it was an institute. It's a proper institute. Well, it's an institute. Here is former President of the United States, George W. Bush. Russian elections are rigged. Political opponents are imprisoned or otherwise eliminated from participating in the electoral process. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq, too. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> 75. Uh, welcome back, Dr. Freud. Hello. Welcome to the show.
myself from earthly things Well, it's foolish, but it bears my name It's grown to become a part of me We'll leave them behind just the same From New Orleans, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, news of our friend the Adam. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Save, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, save, too safe to meet. Save, save, too safe to meet. Well, the current issue of Wired magazine, has a, a piece about nuclear fusion, you know, like like the H-bomb, but without the bomb part. Uh, nuclear fusion, which has been held up as the, um, the real future of nuclear power going forward. Um, it, it means generating a reaction kind of close to the temperature of the sun, which is, you know, touchy, um, a little bit a little bit hard to handle. Um, but the uh, point of the piece in Wired is that the process, as it's currently developed, involves using two isotopes of hydrogen. Deuterium, which is known as heavy water when it's uh, mixed with oxygen, and tritium, our old friend tritium. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the piece in Wired suggests that Tritium is rare and getting rarer and uh, will be a problem going forward if hydrogen fusion becomes our uh, energy source of choice. And then there's this. Japan's nuclear regulator this week approved plans by the operator of the wrecked Fuke plant to release its treated radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean, that is, next year saying the methods are safe 
and risks to the environment minimal. What is that wastewater radioactive with? Tritium. They could just save it up for the for the H H uh, plants. Plan was submitted by Tokyo Electric Power to uh, the government. That's based on the government's decision last year to release the wastewater as a necessary step for the ongoing plant cleanup and decommission. There's still concern in the community and neighboring countries about the potential health hazards of the release of the wastewater. That includes tritium, a byproduct of nuclear power production, and a possible carcinogen at high levels. Well, then, let's keep the levels low, shall we? More than 60 isotopes selected for treatment can be lowered to meet safety standards except for tritium. It's safe if diluted. Scientists say impact of long-term low-dose exposure to the environment and humans are unknown. And the tritium can have bigger impact on humans when consumed in fish than in water. This is from the AP. The head of the Nuclear Authority in Japan said the plan is made conservatively. So the radiation impact on the environment could be still below the legal limit, Tom. Well, I bet the legal limit. That would, yeah. In case of any thinkable risks. All right, then. There's the challenge right there. So um, maybe we shouldn't be dumping the tritium. Maybe we should be keeping in more big tanks. Dayline Waterford, Connecticut, it's crucial to find a solution for storing the nation's spent nuclear fuel. Why, that's the statement of the Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm, during a visit to a nuclear power plant in Connecticut. What a discovery. It's critical to find a solution for storing the nation's spent nuclear fuel. You know, the waste. She was invited to tour, and here is the most fortuitously named facility in the entire energy industry. Millstone Nuclear Power Station. There you go. She and the local congressman, Joe Courtney, are both working to change how spent nuclear fuel is stored nationwide to solve a decades-long stalemate. Again, from the Associated Press, spent fuel that was meant to be stored temporarily at current and former nuclear plant sites nationwide is piling up. Some of it dates back to the 1980s. Quote, it's important for us as a nation to say we're finding a place to store nuclear waste in one place so that communities are not bearing the responsibility and we are consolidating the waste. She said that in front of what appeared to be a concrete bunker that stores spent fuel. There's renewed momentum, says the AP, to figure out a storage site or sites to free up the land where the waste is currently being stored and move it away from population centers, fault lines, floodplains, and, in the case of Southern California, right by the ocean. To responsibly use nuclear power, the congressman from Connecticut says, we have to move on this issue. Energy Department is working to develop a process to ask communities if they're interested in storing spent nuclear fuel on an interim basis that would solve the problem temporarily. But some, including uh, activists in the anti-nuclear world, 
well, the Union of Concerned Scientists, let's say. He says his main concern, he's the director of nuclear power safety there, his concern is that planning for interim storage could undermine efforts to figure out a permanent storage repository underground. If there's a place to ship fuel to, there won't be the political momentum to cite an underground repository, which is the only plausible, safe, long-term solution for the waste, he says. Long-term as in hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of years. Japan's lifting the evacuation order for a Fuk village next month, allowing some of the residents to return home after almost a decade. Authorities have decided to end the difficult-to-return zone. That designation was assigned to uh, an area in the northeastern village of Katsurao. It's going to allow the region to host permanent residents again, if they dare. The boss of Hinkley Point C nuclear plant in England has blamed pandemic disruption after admitting the new nuclear power station will start operating a year later than planned and will cost an extra $4 billion. That's so unusual for nuclear plants. You have to blame the pandemic for it, because otherwise you've never... The uh, first unit at the site is now scheduled to operating June 2027, a year later than planned. Costs estimated between 31 and $32 billion. Why I got that on me? Uh, the French nuclear firm EDF... That's a partner in the plant, says this would not affect the cost to British consumers or taxpayers. Costs will be met by the French company EDF and China's CGN, which is a junior partner in the project. And in December of last year, maintenance checks on the primary circuit of CIVO-1 nuclear plant in France revealed corrosion near the welds on pipes of the safety injection system. Checks were then carried out on the same equipment at Unit 2, revealing similar defects. EDF decided to replace the affected parts, requiring an extended shutdown of the plant and to also take its two other units at Choose B offline to carry out similar checks. In mid-January of this year, EDF announced that the similar faults on the safety uh, safety injection system pipe welds to those discovered at CIVO-1 had been found at CIVO-2 and CHOOSE B-2. In addition, the 10-year in-service inspection at Penley-1 also revealed stress corrosion. At the moment, there are 12 reactors shut down as a result of the issue. There are among a total of 30 reactors in France currently shut down, the others for normal maintenance or 10-year outages. Totally dependent, dependable, reliable, clean, safe, too too safe to meter. Our friend, the atom. And now. The average American has their personal information shared in an online ad bidding war 747 times a day. It's according to the tech journal The Register. 
for an EU citizen, the average one, that number is less than half, 376. Mm, around half from one year. In one year, no, sorry, 178 trillion instances of the same bidding war happen online in the U.S. and the EU. That's according to data shared by the Irish Council on Civil Liberties in a report detailing the extent of real-time bidding, RTB. That's what goes on behind the scenes as ads are served. Love that word. Served. I'd say shoved, but they say served to you, the person who uses the Internet. And me. The technology that drives almost all online advertising, in which is said, relies on sharing of personal information without user consent. That is real-time bidding. The industry was worth more $117 billion last year. The numbers only apply to the U.S. and Europe. Real-time bidding involves the sharing of information about Internet users. It happens whenever a user lands on a website that serves ads. Here you go. Information shared with advertisers can include nearly anything that would help them better target ads. Those advertisers bid on the ad, bid on the ad space based on the information the ad network provides. This all happens in milliseconds. The data can be practically anything based on the Interactive Adver- Advertising Bureau's audience taxonomy. The basics, age, sex, location, income, and the like are included. It doesn't stop there. All sorts of websites fingerprint their visitors. Even charities treating mental health conditions, and those fingerprints can later be used to target ads on unrelated websites. Not included are Amazon and Facebook's RTB networks. That means the scope of the RTB industry is again much larger than this report describes. The Irish Council on Civil Liberties describes RTB as, quote, the biggest data breach ever recorded, unquote. Even that may be giving advertisers too much credit. It's freely broadcast data. Calling it a breach implies action was taken to bypass defenses, of which there aren't any, according to the register. Is RTB violating any laws at all? Yes, claims Gartner Privacy Research VIP Nader Hinein. He told the register the ad tech industry justifies its use of RTB under the legitimate business interest provision of the EU's privacy law. Multiple regulators have rejected that assessment. So the answer would be yes, it is a violation of the law. Hinein opined. As far back as 2019, Google and other ad tech giants were accused by the UK of knowingly breaking the law by using RTB, a case it continues to investigate. So dig in, everybody. Speaking of ad tech, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission this week says it intends to take action against educational technology companies that unlawfully collect data from children using online educational services. Children should not have to needlessly hand over their data and forfeit their privacy in order to do their schoolwork or participate in remote learning, says the FTC, especially given the wide and increasing adoption of ad tech tools. The agency says it will scrutinize educational service providers to ensure they're meeting their legal obligations under the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Makes you want to be a child. 
The FTC, Federal Trade Commission, voted 5 to nothing to adopt the policy statement, indicating that willingness to defend children's privacy extends across party lines. Both Republicans and Democrats on the FTC voted for it. The White House issued a statement in support of the vote. The uh, Children's Privacy Act took effect uh, just about two years ago. I'm sorry, about uh, 22 years ago. It was amended in 2013. It applies to commercial websites and online services, including mobile apps. The FTC signaling its intention to pay closer attention to violations of the children's privacy law. Over the past 22 years, the FTC has fined over two dozen companies for gathering data from minors without explicit parental consent. Biggest such settlement came in 2019 when Google and YouTube agreed to pay $170 million, they got that on them, to resolve application, allegations of Children's Privacy Act violations that year. And yet more. Tracking, marketing, and analytics firms have been exfiltrating the email addresses of Internet users from web forms prior to submission and without user consent. According to security researchers, some of these firms are said to have also inadvertently grabbed passwords from these forms. Whoops! I didn't mean to grab your password, dude. In a search, research paper scheduled to appear at a security conference later this year, the authors describe how they measured data handling in web forms on the top 100,000 websites. They created their own software to measure email and password data gathering from web forms, providing information through a web form by pressing the Submit button, generally indicates the user has consented to provide that information for a specific purposes. purpose, but web pages, because they run JavaScript, Code can be programmed to respond to events prior to a user pressing the submit button. And many companies involved in data gathering and advertising appear to believe they're entitled to grab the information website visitors enter forms with scripts before the submit button has been pressed. Facial recognition bans passed by U.S. cities are being overturned as law enforcement and lobbyist groups pressure local governments to tackle rising crime rates. Look out, there's crime! In July, the state of Virginia will scrap its ban on facial recognition. California California and New Orleans, (laughs) I'm trapped, may follow suit, according to Reuters. Vermont adjusted its bill to allow police to use facial recognition software in child sex abuse cases. Meaning the church? It's a smart, 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 smart world. And now... We're so sorry. Apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, for your listening pleasure. The chief executive of Galaxy Digital Holdings, a leading cryptocurrency company listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange (laughs) has issued a mea culpa as the chief executive for his role in the collapse of two popular, quote, currencies, unquote, and warned that the sector, the cryptocurrency sector, is likely to struggle in in the near future. Risky assets in general have feared poorly over the last six months for many reasons, and now Mike Novogratz, the outspoken CEO of Galaxy Digital, he was one of the top promoters of 
two popular cryptocurrencies, Luna and TerraUSD. They've crashed even more violently than Bitcoin and Ether in the past few weeks. Those currencies, currencies uh, losses wiped out $40 billion in um, investments. Mike Novogratz, promoters of these other Quote, currencies Luna and Terra USD had gone so far as to get a tattoo of a wolf howling at the moon with the tag Luna on his arm in January. He tweeted the pic and added the line, I'm officially a lunatic, in a show of total belief in their future, yet after the value of Luna collapsed last week, he seemed to disappear. But this week, he reemerged with a public letter that acknowledged his poor judgment in backing those two currencies so forcefully. It was a big idea that failed, he wrote. Reading the stories of retail investors who lost their savings is heart-wrenching, he wrote. He also cautioned about the near-term future for crypto. So he's sorry. Doesn't say if he's going to get rid of the tattoo. Jason Momoa, actor, took to Instagram to apologize for taking photos in the Sistine Chapel by posing posting a sweaty, shirtless workout video. That's how we apologize. He's currently in Rome, Rome shooting uh, a movie. The tenth installment in the Fast and Furious saga. He posted snaps of himself below the famous Michelangelo paintings that adorn the walls and ceilings of the chapel earlier this month. In the caption, he wrote, I love you, Italy. But disgruntled fans quickly pointed out in the comments that visitors are typically forbidden for taking photos or videos in the chapel. Then he posted another video in which he addressed the controversy. After a brief moment of working out, it's my last day in Rome and I just love you in Italy. If you ever thought I disrespected your culture, that wasn't my intention. He'd previously visited the Sistine Chapel when he was 19 or 20. For the current trip, he provided a donation so that his friends and crew members from the film could join him on their days off from shooting. I found people really wanted to take photos with me, he said. I was very respectful. I would never want to do anything to disrespect someone's culture, so if I did, I apologize. I definitely paid to have that private moment and gave a nice donation to the church. An if-pology, ladies and gentlemen. S-Oil Chief Executive Officer Hussein al-Qatani apologized over the explosion of its refinery in Korea, South Korea, promised to take all measures possible to prevent such incidents from happening again. I would quote, I would like to express my deepest condolences and apologies to the deceased who lost his life from an incident in S-Oil Orsan Refinery, and to his family. My apologies also go out to the injured workers and local residents close to the refinery to whom we've caused discomfort, he said. I myself and S-Oil will provide full support to make sure the injured workers get the best treatment possible and give utmost care to assist their quick recovery. A fire... A fire it was ignited in the compressor during the startup process after maintenance, according to S.O.L. and firefighters. And 
Well, not and yet. In a trial of huge symbolic importance for Kiev, Vidam Shishimarin, a 21-year-old Russian tank commander charged with murdering an unarmed 62-year-old civilian, he pleaded guilty, could be sentenced to life. Asked by the widow of the dead man if he repented, he told her, yes, I admit guilt. I understand you will not be able to forgive me. I apologize for everything I have done, unquote. And, Dadeline Alpena, Michigan, Alpena Public Schools officials apologized this week for not releasing information sooner after racist words, homophobic statements, and anti-Semitic symbols were found to have been painted on the rock in front of Alpena High School. Officials said they became aware of the hateful language on the rock last Saturday, enlisted students' volunteers to paint over the hate speech to avoid exposing it to the public. Alpena Public Schools strives to create a kind and welcoming environment for all students. Administrators thought the first thing to do was paint over the rock and then discuss what they should do next. We spent too much time deciding what to do, said one of the school officials. I just think it's unacceptable to treat other people that way. The rock was donated to the school several years ago. Students have since used it as a kind of message board for current events and celebration. But the school district has apologized about the rock. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Where do I go when there's nobody else to turn to? Who do I talk to?
This is Le Show. Long-time uh, listeners to this or some other program, perhaps, may recall uh, a, uh, an acronym, Mr. Go. It was the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet. It was built by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in the 1950s, slopping over into the 1960s. And it was a straight-line canal between the Gulf of Mexico and the city of New Orleans, the outskirts thereof, um, to give shippers a, um, a less curvilinear route to the city than via the Mississippi River, which curvy linear is its middle name. That canal was found in two investigative reports that uh, we've discussed on this program to have uh, contributed mightily to uh, the flood damage associated with Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And uh, it was subsequently in, I guess, 2007, uh, ordered by Congress to be closed and um, so that water could never flow from the Gulf to the city via that channel again. Uh, that's the last I knew about it until a report this week from uh, our guest on this program, Amanda Moore, who is head of the Gulf Program for the National Wildlife Federation, and she's on the line with me now. Amanda, thank you for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. So uh, is what I said up to now accurate? You are accurate. Good job. Thank you. Uh, I spent a lot of time on that documentary. So your report this week revealed to me for the first time, I'm sure your regular readers knew about it, that nothing has been done once the the canal was closed. Nothing has been done to remediate the land that uh, it flooded or anything else that it affected. It's just lain there un, um, unrepaired and un, uncompensated for. Is that That's where we are at the moment, right? That is where we are on the side of the federal government's investment in funding. So the state of Louisiana has not let it all just way there. Mm. They have been earnestly trying to advance restoration at the scale that they can, but the Corps has not invested any funding. Congress has not uh, allocated any funding to restoration of the coastal area impacted by the Mr. Go. Has the Congress been requested by the Corps to do such investing? So there is a dispute over the cost share. So in 2007, when the Congress said that in WERDA, in the Water Resources Development Act, that the channel needed to be closed to navigation and they needed to come up, the Army Corps needed to come up with a plan for restoration, there was nothing that was super explicit about who pays for the actual construction of the restoration plan, the projects and plan. And because of that, there has been ongoing disputes. They've gone to court. And ultimately, it will take an act of Congress to figure out, to clarify, so that we can move forward. And what's really infuriating about that is that it's been 15 years, and the communities are the losers, right? When they can, you know, the the core, they cannot interpret things and just everything kind of stays stagnant. We don't get that federal investment that's due. Then the communities that were impacted by the Mr. Go bear the burden of that cost share dispute. 
because they don't get the restoration work that they justly deserve, right? So it's pretty shocking that it hasn't happened in 15 years. And um, we have opportunity right now. There, there has been, to your question, has the Corps requested? I know the state of Louisiana has requested clarification. Uh, there have been lawsuits where this is brought up. Um, and it went up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, I believe, and they said that it was premature to rule on. So essentially we're stuck with Congress having to figure this out, literally an act of Congress again to figure this out. Tell me a little bit about the communities in the area of the Mr. Go. This is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, St. Bernard Parish? Yep. And the Lower Ninth Ward and New Orleans East communities were all also impacted. You know, after Katrina, the Corps tried to initially define the area impacted as about 60,000 acres area of coast. The independent scientists that know the system well said, no, no, it's at least 600,000 acres. <laughs> and they, and they, and they want, they, the Corps shifted their plan and they made their study area 600,000 acres. What we've seen since the channel has been closed with just a rock dam, like a navigational dam, we've seen shifts in salinities of over a million acres of coastal habitat surrounding New Orleans directly attributed to a shift in the hydrology of that channel. So it was more impactful than we even realized. So to the point about the the communities, most a lot of communities were impacted to an extent, everything around Lake Pontchartrain, but the communities most directly impacted by the channel um, were New Orleans East, the Lower Ninth Ford of New Orleans, and uh, St. Bernard Parish. And of course, that, during Katrina, there were numerous levee breaches, and you saw a lot of catastrophic flooding deadly surge and the communities um, from the Lower Ninth Ward especially was probably the one that was most visible. But I don't know if there were any structures in St. Bernard Parish that didn't take water. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sure most people listening aren't that familiar with St. Bernard Parish. To my recollection, uh, 100%, as you said, of the the parish, the county in in, uh, North American terms, were flooded. You had people on their roofs for three days, four days without food or water. Uh, and the reason people aren't familiar with that is because there were no television cameras in St. Bernard Paris. The television cameras went to the freeway close locations in downtown New Orleans. And let's put it uh, this way, the demographics of St. Bernard Parish are very different from those of uh, New Orleans. So you did not get a picture a full picture of the demography of the disaster when you didn't see St. Bernard Parish. I've, I've driven through there. I've driven to two locations in St. Bernard Parish. There are businesses that are up and running. As I said, 100%, and you said 100% of the homes were affected. Have people rebuilt? Yeah. Um, the parish is, there was, for many years after Katrina, there was a lot of, uh, you know, concrete slabs and what were uh, subdivisions, um, just, you know, homes completely wiped out. And they did a lot of innovative recovery work. And the la- I was actually down there um, last week, and I was just, every time I go, I notice more and more homes and more and more happening in St. Bernard. So it definitely, you don't have to look far in the communities like the Lower Ninth Ford and St. Bernard Parish to see 
Katrina impact still 17 years later. Um, but the St. Bernard is definitely rebuilt, and I don't think they have the same population that they did. Um, and definitely the Lower Ninth Ward does not. But it's a you know it's a vibrant suburban community of New Orleans. Hmm. I want to get back to the core. When the core wants to do a project, uh, in in what I've read and and found out about it, it's fairly, shall we say, on the front foot when it comes to uh, contacting local Congress people and other officials to sort of push the idea of what it wants to do. In a matter of fact, uh, that's what it did when it uh, conceived of the Mister Go in the first place. Is it not? It uh, mm-hmm. buttonholed local. They definitely worked. Yeah, they worked with the state and with the Port of New Orleans, and there were a lot of different entities involved. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But the the core was not a shrinking violet when it came to advocating for the uh, Mister Go, as as I recall uh, reading about. I wasn't here at the time. But uh, so have they just been sitting quietly by the uh, by the telephone, waiting for Congress to say, "What would you like us mm-hmm. to do?" Yeah, I mean, we felt like when they came out with their restoration plan in 2012, the Assistant Secretary of the Army at that time, Joellen Darcy, she recommended, the plan was many billions of dollars. She recommended over a billion dollars worth of restoration projects to Congress, but they could not, because of the cost-share dispute, they could not get to, they, they need to sign a project partnership agreement with the state, and they were just at a stalemate. And really, essentially, what has happened since then, which has been a decade, is, I mean, for all intensive purposes, that plan is sitting on a shelf. Yeah, you refer to the cost-sharing dispute. So over time, the core initially was saying a traditional cost-share. A traditional cost-share is 65 federal, 35 state. And they're in negotiations right now in the 2022 Water Resources and Development Act. And there are all, all kinds of positions, you know, there's a lot of a lot going on in the sausage making right now, but we feel very strongly that it is a full federal cost. You know, the channel was a federal channel operated and maintained by the federal government. The rock dam that they built to close it. it. There's actually a couple of navigational closures. Those were all at full federal expense. The restoration plan was mandated at full federal expense. And so there's the history there that this Mm -hmm. is a full federal issue. So there is a plan sitting there. Uh, Can you describe what the plan would entail in terms of um, how St. Bernard and uh, surrounding parts of uh, Orleans Parish would be restored? Yes. So there was a lot of advocacy work. It's actually pretty unprecedented engagement by local communities in St. Bernard and Lower Ninth Ward, the city of New Orleans, and nonprofits, science organizations working uh, with the Corps for them to come up with their 2012 plan. So the plan includes a lot of marsh creation, a lot of shoreline protection along the channel, ridge restoration, and some areas in St. Bernard. It involves some marsh creation work in the central wetlands unit, which is behind the federal levees and in between where all the community, the the population is from St. Bernard to up into the lower ninth ward. There's a 30,000 acre wetland unit that has, uh, they call for restoration 
um, in that area. Um, the funnel, the infamous funnel, um, mm-hmm. where the Mr. Go meets the intercoastal waterway and it intersects there. Um, and during Katrina, they call it the funnel. Uh, because there's a wall of water that came through right there um, where those two water bodies meet, those two channels meet. That has a lot of restoration work slated. And the New Orleans East Land Bridge, it's called a critical landscape feature by the Army Corps. It essentially separates Lake Pontchartrain from Lake Bourne. So it stops the storm surge from going basically from the Gulf of Mexico up into Lake Pontchartrain. And so there is full, there's a lot of restoration work on that. The, the Army Corps' plan has a lot of synergy with the state of Louisiana's coastal master plan, which is really the state's blueprint. That's how they're spending their oil spill penalty dollars, for instance. All of the work that's been done by the state to date has been driven by their coastal master plan, but there's a, a lot of synergy with the Army Corps' plan. So there's a lot of work that we can do, and we'll still be, you know, doing the Army Corps' plan, state's plan, the work that the NGOs support. There's a lot of restoration work that has to be done. And some people think that doing restoration work on the Mr. Go means, like, filling in the Mr. Go, and that's not at all. That's impossible, honestly. Uh, I think they did a, a price on that back in after Katrina, and it was like $20 billion or something, because the channel is so big and so deep and so wide. So that's not that, – and that's not really what we need either. We need to, to restore hydrology and the wetlands and protect shorelines from continuing to erode and protect those critical areas that protect communities. Do we know – we humans – know how to restore wetlands? We do. They do it all the time in coastal Louisiana. They have some really great successes. I think most of the dredges in the U.S. are working in Louisiana right now. They, um, they've gotten pretty good over the years at coastal restoration, and their budget, for instance, in this coming year for coastal restoration is over a billion dollars at the state. So the, the state is really... One of one of the best, um, and the contractors they work with at doing wetland restoration. Your organization is the Wildlife Federation. What what happened to wildlife uh, at at the time of the uh, flooding of the Mister Go, and what's the state of the wildlife in that area now? When the Mister Go was built, you had a lot of the fresh and intermediate swamps and that gradient of wetlands that you usually see in a healthy river delta and a healthy estuary, you saw a lot of saltwater intrusion, a lot of degradation. So when you have that, you lose diversity of species and you lose that diversity of habitat. So when they closed the, um, the channel in 2012 with a permeable rock dam, they were really smart about it. And they did it right, the Army Corps did this, they did it right at um, a natural ridge feature that the Mr. Go cut through. So they restored some of the natural hydrology. And like I was saying, we saw the shift in salinity back to pre-Mr. Go over a few years, um, back to those levels after the channel was closed off. And I think people were very pleasantly surprised that, that happened from this rock dam and 
it has allowed some of the habitat restoration to start taking that wasn't really possible before the channel was closed and while the channel was still open. For instance, up in Maurepas Swamp, north of the city of New Orleans and the upper part of Lake Pontchartrain, they are planting cypress trees and they're thriving and they're doing really well. And that correlates to the salinity reduction because the habitat is more conducive now to sustaining cypress trees. You're seeing clams and oysters and different shellfish come back in areas where they hadn't been and thrive in areas where they hadn't been. You're seeing more crawfish sometimes in the area. And, and these fresher species um, are, are kind of starting to starting to come back. And that's really good news because that means that all the restoration work that's going to, that's, you know, to come and that's being done right now in the area is, has, you know, a better chance at success. It's kind of priming the area for that restoration. Anytime you say more crawfish, I'm in. (laughs) So this is in Congress at the moment where? In a congressional committee as they work on the the WERDA uh, act for this year? So they ju- it just came out of transportation and infrastructure um, in the House uh, yesterday. And now we have to wait for a full House vote. And then it goes into conference with the Senate version. And then we get across the finish line. And that is a lot in Congress. <laughs> I didn't know they had a finish line still. Um, <laughs> so um, That's a lot. One little sequence is like, you know, it's a lot. When yeah. is that going to happen? So we have to keep, not take anything for granted, right? And and so we're really working hard to make sure Congress knows how critical it is that they get this done. This is a, a case of vast damage to the area done by the federal decision, along with support from the business community, to build the Mr. Go in the first place. This, this is not a, a act of nature. This is an act of man, and, and the man lives in Washington, D.C. And uh, as you mentioned, it's taken a long time to even come to this point to be thinking seriously about funding the uh, restoration. Your organization is lobbying uh, for this? Or advocating, educating, educating. Okay, which is what you're doing so right we now. We can help people plug in for huh. sure, and everybody across the country. This is a federal issue. You know, it's a federal channel, and we're asking Congress for funds. So anybody that wants to see justice served from the impacts of Katrina, and allow these communities to recover, you know, it, your voice matters right now. Amanda Moore. Director of the Gulf Program of the National Wildlife Federation. Thank you so much for uh, getting us up to date on this uh, crazy situation. Uh, Really appreciate it, and good luck to you. Thank you, Harry. You've always been a great advocate for this, so thank you so much. We appreciate you. Oh, thank you. And now, a little bit of news of the godly. Germany's Catholic and Protestant churches have been criticized for their handling of clergy sexual abuse for years by victims, believers in the media. Now they face new pressure from an unexpected corner, the insurance industry. A National Association of Accident Insurance Providers, 
VSG, sorry, VBG, recently complained to the two predominant church bodies in the country that they hadn't been notified of the thousands of sexual abuse cases that have been found in the church group's ranks. According to German law, sexual abuse cases can fall under the rules governing the church's insurance policies. Policyholders must inform the company of known cases and help insurers determine how much compensation they should pay. The uh, lawyers for the insurance association says church insurance policies cover both paid employees and volunteers at church-run activities, such as liturgies, youth groups, or outings. If an older boy is abused during work, that is a work accident. Those affected in the context of church volunteer work have our fullest sympathy, said a spokesperson for the insurance companies. News of the Godly, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And just another religion note from Germany. Archbishop Heinrich Koch of Berlin, of the Berlin Kochs, has asked forgiveness for the church's discrimination against people because of their sexual orientation. Homophobia was a, quote, unholy line of tradition in the Catholic Church, he said, during an ecumenical service at a Protestant church. According to the German Catholic News Agency, he said he called for respect for the dignity of every human being, regardless of their sexual orientation. Announcing that the Archbishop, Archdiocese of Berlin will take measures to ensure this. And a Protestant official, Reverend, said uh, in Protestant parishes, too. People who did not conform to heterosexual norms have not been accepted, quote, for far too long. Every phobia, he added, separates from God and becomes a sin. Here's the godly. Always more good news of the God. But that's all for this week's edition of the show. Back next week at the same time, over these same radio stations, over... Your audio device of choice whenever you want it. And it'd be just like solving that nasty cost share problem. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. Tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk, the Hawaii desk to Pam Halstead, and to Thomas Walsh here at WWNO New Orleans. Yeah. Give, give Thomas a hand. The email address for this program, chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, if they still exist, and the playlists of the music heard here on all at harryshearer.com, and I'm on Twitter at theharryshearer.
show comes to you from Century Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from New Orleans.